If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. I think we've seen that not only in sports collectibles, but in a lot of other categories too. It's not a traditional investment, but it's a very good investment. If you do your research, you learn the market, and you have trusted advisors as well. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're going back to 1967. LBJ was president, Aretha Franklin released Respect, and you're about to hear the sound of Mickey Mantle, one of baseball's all-time greats, hitting his 500th home run. Here's a payoff pitch. This is it! There it goes! It's out of here! All right, that was 1967, more than 50 years ago. Charles, why are we talking about this today? So here's the deal. Mantle is not only one of the biggest names in baseball, one of my father's favorite players, by the way, he's also one of the biggest names in baseball cards. So last year in August, a 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card became the most expensive piece of sports memorabilia to be sold at auction. How much did it go for? $12.6 million for a baseball card. Yikes. I have a few baseball cards, and in fact, I have a signed baseball card from my favorite player. His name was Willie McGee, played for the St. Louis Cardinals. I did look up the price of the card just out of curiosity because I knew we were going to be recording this episode, and it's going for about $11.50. Okay, I have a little different story, Stephanie. So I collected baseball cards very seriously in my youth. We're talking about in the 1970s here. And I could have bought a Babe Ruth card then for about $100. I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, that would be a lot of allowance money. Today, it would be worth thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, I could be a gazillionaire if I really went wild back then. I didn't, unfortunately. So it seems like it might be the time for listeners to clean out their closets, attics, or wherever those boxes full of treasure from the distant past might be hiding. Yeah, you're right, Stephanie, because if you're holding on to a set of rare cards in mint condition, you might be sitting on a big pile of money. In the past few years, collectibles from baseball cards to comic books to a whole lot of other things have become a really big business. And you don't even have to hold on to a baseball card for decades to cash in. Get this, an original iPhone, sealed in its packaging, recently sold for $63,356 at auction. That's an iPhone. So what's going on here? Why has the price of collectibles soared in recent years? Our first guest is Chris Ivey, director of sports auctions at Heritage Auctions. I think it's a culmination of several different factors happening at the same time. And I think, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were seeing significant growth and 
and more people joining different collectible markets, especially the sports collectibles field, which I um, focus on. And then the pandemic just seemed to really, you know, add gasoline to that fire and that interest. I think it started just real basic with people that were, were stuck at home and started getting back into hobbies and interests. And so that, that was certainly one aspect of it. It wasn't only as a result of being cooped up during the pandemic. For Ivy, the economy plays a role too, and many serious collectors see their collections as real investments. I think a more economic aspect of it was that people could see what was going on economically as a whole, and they could see that inflation was going to be something that we were going to have to deal with in the future. And one way to hedge against inflation is to buy hard assets. And so I think that's certainly what we're dealing in here in collectibles is they are hard assets and they're also alternative assets. And that's another aspect. I think that people felt that a lot of traditional investments, maybe like real estate and Wall Street, they thought that those have been growing for many years and that a lot of them were maxed out. So they started looking for alternative assets. But that's not all. For Ivy, demographics are also important and collectors tend to acquire items that have an intangible value, namely nostalgia. I think the other factor was age. I think a lot of people that were looking to invest, most people skewed to be in the 40 to 60 age range. And a lot of them were maybe more interested in comic books and sports cards that saw significant booms in the 80s. They may have been you know, anywhere from 10 to 25 years old during that boom and had enjoyed it. That got their feet wet in the market. And so when it came back and they're thinking about alternative assets to invest in, I think that it only makes sense that they lean into the items that are a little bit nostalgic for them and that they enjoyed when they were younger. The market has also changed and the sports memorabilia market in particular. It used to be a lot more risky. It was a lot more like the Wild West in the 80s and 90s, and even 20 years ago, as far as authentication of this material, being able to have it vetted professionally by a trusted third party, which allowed you to liquidate these assets. And now, especially with sports cards and third party grading, a lot of these things are a lot more commoditized than they used to be 20, 30 years ago. And it's a much more uh, safe investment from a lot of angles, depending on what type of material you're buying, as far as, you know, the material has been vetted. And if you're buying from trusted sources, you know you're getting good material for your collection. Ivy is referring to third-party grading, which is done by companies like Professional Sports Authenticator, or PSA. How it works is that a party that has no vested interest in the sale of an individual item independently verifies its authenticity. In other words, as a buyer, you know what you're going to be paying for, and as a seller, you know what you have. Second only to authenticity is condition, and these third-party graders also certify the condition of an item. Condition is, is one of the primary factors that uh, investors look in, and, and essentially, as the condition gets better, the examples available get much scarcer, and the demand gets higher, and the price is ultimately get higher. So for the stuff that's truly rare and unique that's sought after by collectors, there's a lot fewer of them out there. And that's why we see those type of numbers. So what we've seen is those top tier examples, as far as investment purposes are concerned, those are seeing much better returns. The returns for the higher end material are stronger and, and growing quicker 
than the returns for the mid-grade material where there's, where there's other examples available for people to purchase. What does the future of the sports memorabilia market look like? No market goes up perpetually, right? There's always going to be corrections. There's always going to be periods of growth and then periods of, of decline. But overall, I think the collectibles market and the sports collectibles market specifically are very well poised. I liken collecting vintage Hall of Fame players more along the lines of investing in blue chip stocks, IBM, Apple, Amazon, those type of things, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle. Those players, their names are etched in the record books as some of the greatest of all times. They're in the Hall of Fame. So there's really nothing that's going to occur to really significantly damage their collectability and their place in the marketplace. Whereas modern modern cards, for example, LeBron James, Tom Brady, Mike Trout, people that are still playing, those are much more speculative. There's people buying Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert rookie cards, Patrick Mahomes, you know, at significant numbers. But again, those players are still playing. Their stats haven't been written. They play in violent sports and an injury in the season could be career ending. And that wouldn't only damage the team and the player's future, but those people that have maybe purchased their sports cards as investment. So modern cards have a lot more uh, risk and doesn't have as many long-term collectors as I would say vintage cards does, but just depends on, on what your interest is as a collector and, and how risky you want to be. It's kind of like the stock market. If you bought Apple stock way back when and held on to it, you're pretty happy about that. And if you're holding on to one of those rare Mickey Mantle cards in great condition, you're really happy about that. But Heritage doesn't only deal in sports cards. Beyond recognizable categories like comic books and entertainment memorabilia, there are more esoteric options. That includes, if you can believe it and you can remember what they are, VHS tapes. VHS tapes are an interesting one. I think it does add that nostalgic factor. I think very few VHS tapes are even made today, if any. You know, you've got that original cover art. You've got the same aspects that are sought after by collectors in any category, which is, is it original? Is it unused? What kind of condition is the box in? All of those things. I would say VHS is a little bit behind the video game collecting movement that we've seen the last few years. I think that's the same type of thing, nostalgic. Obviously, putting VHS tapes or video games in, in holders and grading them is not what they originally intended for. But none of this stuff that's collectible that we're handling was what it's originally intended for. You know, baseball cards, comic books are intended to be read by children, not, not you know, sonically sealed in slabs and, and graded. But that's the beauty of these collectibles. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun for the people that collect them and they enjoy it. And that's the backbone of the business. In 2022, a collector in New York paid $75,000 for a VHS tape, still wrapped, of course, of the 1986 classic Back to the Future. Stephanie, do you have any of those old VHS tapes lying around somewhere in a closet? I doubt it, and if I did, I'm sure they wouldn't be wrapped in their original packaging, but boy, do I wish I did. I never thought I'd be talking about VHS tapes again, but moving on... While stories about VHS tapes and baseball cards selling for gobs of money are impressive, what's the whole collectibles market look like? We asked Ivy, how much in sales did Heritage do last year? The sports department did just under $200 million, and Heritage as a whole, I believe it was uh, $1.4 billion. 
In his decades in the collectibles business, did Ivy ever anticipate these kinds of numbers? It's incredible. We've got clients that purchased items for a million dollars 20 years ago. And I still remember that would get headlines and the comments, people were like, they're nuts. He's crazy. Why would you, why would you buy a Babe Ruth jersey for a million dollars? That jersey today, I, I could sell it tomorrow for $25 million. And I think we've seen that not only in sports collectibles, but in a lot of other categories too. It's not a traditional investment, but it's a very good investment if you do your research you learn the market, and you have trusted advisors as well. I feel like this is making me want to root through some of my closets. And if you've already begun digging through boxes, well, keep digging. We'll be back after this. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard about the booming collectibles market, and especially the booming market for sports memorabilia. Remember that Mickey Mantle card we talked about at the beginning of the episode? Well, the guy who bought the card in 1991 paid $50,000, sold it in 2022 for $12.6 But the Wall Street Journal did the math, and that means the seller made a roughly 20% annualized return on the card since he bought it over three decades ago, more than double what an S&P 500 index fund would have yielded. Which is kind of what really intrigues me. I mean, is it time to start thinking of collectibles as part of your portfolio. Collectibles are an expression of individuals' passions over time. And they include very different items that are scarce and that have a certain interest for us people. That's Nanette Heckler-Fader, Chief Investment Officer of International Wealth Management and Global Head of Economics and Research at Credit Suisse. Of course, the biggest collectible class category is art, but there are very different collectibles, wines, classic cars, luxury handbags, and it goes on and on as broad and diverse human passions are. Instead of baseball cards, Heckler Fader is primarily concerned with the varieties of collectibles held by ultra high net worth individuals, which Credit Suisse defines as individuals with a total wealth of more than $50 million. She does not, however, consider collectibles to be an alternative investment. 
I think before categorizing it as an alternative investment, I would say that collectibles are a non-financial investment. Generally speaking, these are tangible assets. They are non-financial assets. However you think about collectibles as an investment, Heckler Fader does consider them to be a nice hedge in an era of rising inflation. But not all collectibles are created equal. It's uh, very interesting to see that different collectibles react differently to inflation regimes. So, for example, when inflation is, is high, more elevated than what it normally is, certain collectibles have a better way and propensity to, to preserve their value. That would be the case for watches, wristwatches in particular, but also certain luxury handbags. And then other assets are less able to preserve their value in these periods of elevated inflation. And that could be said for art. For example, we have found Latin American and American art to be suffering in periods of elevated inflation. The other aspect comes with the business cycle. And we are all expecting 2023 to be a rather slow a year by economic growth globally. So collectibles can be also viewed differently by where we are in the business cycle. In a broader sense, there's a relationship between the value of collectibles and global wealth. So when household wealth is on the rise, and in particular when big fortunes are made, this is, in general, a very good context for collectibles and for collectible returns and for collectibles' values going up. However, when global private wealth is stagnating or even going down, then times become a little bit more difficult for collectibles as well. So really collectibles are a mirror and a reflection of what private wealth is doing over the world. But collectibles aren't only playthings for the very wealthy, which leads us to another guest, a person I've been dying to talk to for years. Hi there, I am Marsha Bemko. I'm the executive producer of Antiques Roadshow. If you haven't seen it, Antiques Roadshow is a television program that has aired on PBS since 1997. The Roadshow traverses the United States, and in each destination where it stops, residents bring items of value to be appraised by the experts. Sometimes, an old blanket turns out to be a one-of-a-kind Navajo ute blanket from the 1850s, worth between one and a half and two million dollars. Other times, Grandma's vase, well, turns out just a vase. During her years producing Roadshow, Bemko has seen a whole lot of collectibles. And in her view, there's a rhythm to the rise and fall of various categories of collectibles. The kinds of things that I see that are collectible these days are things that my children wanted to have or that I had. Remember Archie, Betty, and Veronica? I love comic books. I love those comic books. I bought them all the time. How did I forget what they were? 12 cents, 25 cents, really, really inexpensive. Or like my kids, Pokemon cards. 
that kind of thing that you bought as a kid for very, very little. You bought them like in a pack of bubble gum. You didn't spend a lot of money, but you kept yours. So if you're thinking of investing in a collectible that could be worth thousands, maybe even millions in a few decades, what should you be looking for? The thing is, is that when you look back at the Archie comic books, back when you could have bought them at for the 12 cents, 25 cents, huh? was it worth it? I'm sure there were other comic books on the stand that day that haven't gone up like that. So who's to predict what's going to be hot in the future? And if you're looking to buy new things, like that are made in multiples and you think they're going to go up in value, well, anything that there's made hundreds of probably isn't going to go up in value that much. It's about rarity. The really valuable items that we see always have rarity in common. doesn't matter what it is. It's always rare. If you're interested in getting into collectibles, where should you start? Let's go back to Chris Ivey. My number one piece of advice is always to collect what you enjoy, you know, what, what brings you happiness. It, and it doesn't necessarily have to, to be big, big money, but there are aspects of the market that continue to mature and grow. 20 years ago, you could have bought original photographs for literally pennies on the dollar for what they're selling for now, because that wasn't a part of the market that wasn't matured. A lot of people didn't understand it. And now we're selling individual photographs, iconic photographs of Ty Cobb, for example. We recently sold the image that was used for his uh, 1915 Cracker Jack card. It was an oversized image. You know, that's a photo that probably would have traded hands for under $1,000 20 years ago. Ty Cobb, also known as the Georgia Peach, is another one of baseball's legends. And that 1915 image Ivy mentioned? Heritage recently sold it for $516,000. It used to just be too difficult for most collectors to understand what was authentic, what was legitimate. But once, once there's parameters created and a trusted marketplace for those items and people understand how many of those items are legitimately out there, it allows people to start being more comfortable with buying those items for their collection and investing in it. And with that comfortability, we see more people joining the market and ultimately the price is going, uh, increasing significantly over time. We had one more question for Marsha Bemko, the executive producer of Antiques Roadshow. If there's one part of the United States where she tends to find buried treasure, where is it? I have to be honest with you, I don't know. And if there are any pockets like that, I kind of guess you'd have to ask one of our experts, frankly, to get a better answer. But it's kind of like a fishing hole. I think if they knew about it, they may not tell you, right? I want to keep all that good fish in that fishing hole for myself. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Chris Ivey, Nanette Heckler-Faderb, and Marsha Bemko. To learn more about collectibles, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoff, and Katie Ferguson. Michael McDowell mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Tim Rostin was our newsroom editor on this episode. 
The Best New Ideas and Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the Market Watch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.